0: Welcome to the Newberry Tart Podcast. Your hosts, Marcy and Jenny, are talking and drinking their way through Newberry award-winning books, past and present. Hi, and welcome back to the Newberry Tart Podcast. Today we are talking to K.G. Campbell, who's the illustrator of Kate DiCamillo's Flora and Ulysses, which won the Newberry Medal in 2014. I am Marcy. And I'm Jenny. And today with us is K.G. Campbell. Hi. Hi. Hi.
1: Hey. nice to
2: talk to you.
0: It's good to talk with you too. Thank you so much for being here. Can you
2: talk a bit about the references that you generally use? Or where you get your references?
1: Uh, you mean visual references? Mm-hmm. Um, well, it always starts with the manuscript, uh, and you pick up what visual clues you can from the text. Uh, for example, um, in flora and ulysses um flora's head is described as being very round um And basically that that was really the only visual clue I had to go in creating Flora. So I gave her short hair to accentuate the fact that her head was round. Um, and I can't remember now, it was a couple of years ago, I can't remember if she had glasses in the text or not, but if she didn't, that also helped to accentuate her round head. So um, that's where it starts. Um, after that, uh, because I live in or near Hollywood, uh, and I have a lot of contacts in the industry, um, I do tend to cast uh, my characters. Um, now, I'm not actually using real people. I'm not creating portraits of real people, but I look for uh, people that have a certain type, and I use sort of a generalization of their features um, to give a character a, sort of a distinctive kind of look, um, and it helps me when I'm drawing character in different positions or with different facial expressions, um, having that point of reference really helps to keep it consistent and also to give them a sort of, you know, character as it were. Well.
2: Mm-hmm. What about, because um, you have a, in, in your picture books as well as in Flora, you have great drawings of animals, um, and they're so expressive. Um, I, I imagine you can 't cast a jellyfish or <laughs> um, or maybe no, no you
1: know, that usually just comes down to google images mm-hmm. um, yeah. yeah i mean there 's so much visual material available mm-hmm. online that i 'll just suck up my my reference folders with you know as many images of whatever that animal is that uh, I can, and then i 'll you know, depending on the on the book, in the picture book in particular, you'll accentuate and exaggerate the characteristics of the animal um that make it distinct. So for example, a giraffe would have an extremely long neck. Um you know, that kind of thing.
0: I bet in Hollywood you can cast a jellyfish if you really want to. <laughs> <laughs> yes,
1: yeah. <laughs> but you yeah, have to go through their agent though <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm.
0: I was impressed with um in Flora and Ulysses how you were able to make that squirrel so cute, even though he was all patchy and weird, he was still adorable and covered in cheese dust, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, I mean, it was a challenge I mean, Ulysses was a challenge, I have to say, i mean if it had it been a picture book, no problem, but this is a middle grade novel uh and graphic novel hybrid, mm-hmm. and one of the big as I faced with that was that cartoon cells are extremely small. And, you know, in certain places, um, we needed several cartoon cells in order to tell the narrative. And so now you're dealing with a really, really small image and a very small animal. Um, <laughs> so it was, that was a challenge, I have to say.
2: Well, I'm a huge graphic novel um, enthusiast. Um... And I, I really love the way that you did those panels. I thought they were, they were excellent. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Thank you. A lot of work. <laughs> I'm not sure if I'll be tackling another graphic novel at any time series. Every single uh, cartoon cell is an illustration. I mean, it may be small, but it still has to be, you know, constructed and, um, mm-hmm. you know, laid out and everything, just, just as it would, as if it were a, a normal sized mm-hmm. image. So.
2: Exactly, yeah. Do you actually get headshots from some of your friends and do that, or do you um, solicit maybe like an acting reel? Um or do you just pick a character or an actor in a movie that already exists and then um and then and goes they come
1: from, from everywhere. Um mm-hmm. TV and film, absolutely. Um yeah, as I say I'm not trying to uh, actually create portraits of these people, mm-hmm. but they do Yeah, give me a kind of type. Um I think, actually, I remember if I remember correctly, um, the chef uh, in the diner scene is based very loosely on Danny DeVito. Um, <laughs> he has, you know, he's got a, a short, burly body, and, and so, you know, that's the kind of thing I do. But it's not just actors. It's, it's people in my own life. Um, actually, 19th century photography, mm-hmm. um, there's a lot of, sources there, because I don't know what it was, but prior to 1915, 1920, people in photographs were so freaky-looking, and <laughs> I think uh, as, as our gene pool has gotten um, bigger, we've become a little bit more generic. People, people in the 19th century tend to have, or not all of them, but a lot of them have extremely extreme, very extreme features, and uh, uh, I, I find a lot of sources there, so...
2: I often um, I often think about that and I think about I think about the fact that, that part of that part of the reason why they were so extreme might have been that they didn't realize that they should quaff for a photograph. It was like this is this is an image of me. This is me, you know, whereas now we have, you know, we have these very airbrushed ideals of what we should look like in photographs.
1: Yeah. yeah, no, absolutely. I think you're right. I think now people um, portray what they want people to see mm-hmm. rather than what they are. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that's
0: true. Every now and then you'll see a Victorian picture where they're actually laughing or something like that. And even though they're a little blurry because of the process, it's amazing the difference it makes.
2: You know which ones that I love, which are really freaky? Hmm. The Invisible Mother ones. Do you guys oh, know about those? Oh, yes.
0: Those are so weird
2: mother i don't know
0: that one when they were taking these when they were taking these pictures it took there was a longer exposure time and so they had to keep these small children very still and the only way they could do that was to have the mothers sort of masquerade as furniture and they would drape them and like the mother's rugs would, and stuff yeah, rugs and, and <laughs> curtains and things and have them sort of be the chair that the child was sitting in but they're also like holding their child mm-hmm. <laughs> but if you know wow. what you're looking at it's so
2: creepy it is its It's amazing, though. I mean, the things that people come up with in a pinch.
1: Yeah, and then there's those posthumous, uh, posthumous photographs Mm -hmm. of the dead children, basically.
2: Yeah. Well, I think that it wasn't just children, right? Like it was kind of a standard to take a picture of
0: yeah, but your. But you know how many children died because of the early, and they were like, "Oh, this is the only image I'll ever have of little Susie." Yeah, Yeah, yeah. There were a lot of them. Yeah, that's true.
1: Yeah.
2: Yeah. Well, different people celebrate life in different ways.
0: (laughs) I don't know. I I like the creepy images. I can't help it. All the Edward (laughs) Gorey-esque. Yeah, I do too. I just, when I really
2: think about, like, it's a dead kid. Like, when I really think of, if it's a drawing, that's one thing. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm all in. But an actual photograph of an actual child, it's too much. Didn't used to bother me, but Uh, now that I I actually have have kids.
1: Miss Peregrine's home for peculiar children yes. i have not read them but
2: i've looked through all of <laughs> them because i just i couldn't help myself i had to see all the really cool pictures which i know were real in in a matter of speaking mm-hmm. right
1: yeah yeah but I mean, I, you know i i'm guessing that the author was was very much inspired by this exact kind of thing i mean all this strange mm-hmm. photograph victoria photographs in particular
2: Another thing that I I noticed, um, in Flora, but, but in particular, the rest of your, your picture books is your use of textures. And, um, I just love how you will have various textures on one page or, um, even within one like little frame in a page. Um, do you do anything special? Like, do you mix media a lot on a single image?
1: my primary materials are watercolor and color pencil Mm -hmm. Um, so color pencil is going to give you a lot of texture uh, and it's also great for the subtle rendering of texture Um, it's great for hair and fur obviously Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, so yeah those those are what I use mainly Um, there's a little bit of digital stuff in there but uh, and I think for your actually, was 100% color pencil. There wasn't even any watercolor. It's just mm-hmm. um, various grays and blacks colored pencil, and that's it.
2: Yeah, that was another question I had. If it was color and then it had been grayscaled, or if you had done it all in black and white.
1: No, it was in black and white, yeah. It's beautiful. Um, thank you. Yeah. Thank you.
0: What scale do you work at for a book like that? Like, I understand how picture books work, but when you're working on a chapter book and the pages are going to be so much smaller than your standard picture book, what what scale do you work at for the artwork originally?
1: I work at whatever the size of the book. I work at about somewhere between one hundred and ten and one hundred and twenty-five percent. I like to work a little bit bigger so that when it's reduced. Um, the detail becomes crisper, um, but I don't like to work so large that I I lose sight of what it's going to look like at the end. Um, if I were you know if you were twice as large, it might wind up uh, becoming denser in places than you wanted, and maybe lo- losing some uh, detail that you thought would show. So I try and keep it fairly close. Um, so that's it.
0: That seems like it would be so difficult because the, the pages are are fairly small and the images are so tiny, but you still got all that detail in there. That's amazing.
1: <laughs> yeah, actually, I'm looking, I have um, I have one of the pictures framed on my wall. I'm looking at it right now, and it's it's small. <laughs> it is small, yeah. But look, uh, you know, in terms of when you're dealing with traditional art rather than digital art, um, the size of an image very much affects how. Long it takes because color pencil is quite a time consuming medium, and the larger the, the surface area that you have to cover, the longer it's going to take. I mean, The Mermaid and the Shoe, or Green Sister Strange in particular, which came out last year, mm-hmm. um, it's all that entire book is double page spreads. And you know, mm-hmm. I was working again, I was working at 125% or something, so those were enormous, and you know, covering that with color pencil was. Very, very time consuming.
2: We actually have that open on the on the table in front of us. That book. I love that octopus.
1: <laughs> yeah, the octopus um, the octopus picture is actually my favorite illustration I've ever done, and that is actually right in front of me as well, framed on the wall. Uh,
2: he looks like so he doesn't yeah. take any mess. <laughs>
0: No, I just love the way his tentacles go down somehow. I don't know what there is about that, but I love it.
2: Well, it looks like a beard. <laughs> or <he shrugged. laughs> Oh, yeah, he is shrugging. I didn't pick up on that. <laughs> it, I was thinking it looked like a beard, and then he had, yeah, those are his arms. I just was thinking he just had them out. But, yeah, that's awesome. It's a shrug. So, how did you um, how did you get involved with *Flora and Ulysses* as a project?
1: Um, they came to me. I mean, it was it was my lucky day, my big break, as it were. Uh, the way it works is that the art director at the publishing house um, goes in search of an illustrator that they feel would suit the manuscript that they're working with. Um, in it's depending on the success and fame of the author, um, they will get a say. Obviously, someone like Kate Camillo gets gets the power of veto. Um, So, um, I'm You know, my agent is actually a a, an illustration agent, uh, Painted Words, Florian Awiki, and they, like other illustration agencies, have stables of talent and uh, websites that are easily accessed. And I assume that the art director will go to those websites and look for someone that they think might work, and then the agent contacts us and finds out if we're interested. In this case, it was a little different, because I wasn't actually told what the project was. Uh, My agent called me one day and said the candlewick was interested in me for a project, but could I draw my characters without the big bug eyes? (laughs) Uh, And I said, sure. And uh, I did a little sample. I I drew one character, a little boy with, like, maybe six or eight different styles of eyes, just from black dots to super realistic to everything in between. Um, and I sent that to her the next day. And I think it was the following day um, that she called, my agent called and said that the project that they were interested me in was Kate Camillo's next novel. And I was like, oh my God. I mean, Kate David Camilla was actually one of the reasons that I got into Kids Lit in the first place. I was at a dinner party, well, I don't know, 10 years ago, whatever it was, and um, I was talking to someone about my interest in it, and uh, I'd always wanted to write and illustrate children's books, and she told me about The Miraculous Journey of Edward Tulane. When I read it, I was blown away. I didn't even know that children's literature that quality was still being produced both in terms of the manuscript and in terms of the product and it's such a beautiful book um, and the illustrations are magnificent and I was it was at that point I decided to start taking it more seriously Uh, so that book being such a milestone in my career to then I think it was only what was my second project for an ulysses just fell on my lap and I was like oh I just couldn't believe it it was incredible um, it's amazing. And then I won the Newbery.
0: So how did you feel when you heard that it won the Newbery?
1: Um, I, I, I don't know. I don't even have to describe it. It was incredible. I mean, um, thrilled, amazed. Um, <laughs> just, it was unbelievable. And I had only, I think I only published three books at this point. So, and suddenly I'm, you know, I won the Newbery Award with Kate, and it was amazing.
0: So exciting! Did you go to the uh, Did you go to the ceremony?
1: I did. They they kindly invited me to the ceremony, so I was there. It was just so busy and hectic, and so many people talking at you. And um, obviously, I remember Kate's speech was great. Although I can't remember what she said, <laughs> but. Um, uh, I just—I was—I was. was, Remember being overwhelmed, and it was Vegas, which was really weird to see a bunch of librarians (laughs) running
0: around Vegas.
1: Well, uh, I—I have to admit um, that I don't really remember going to bed that night because it was quite a celebratory (laughs) night, and it was Vegas. Uh, And I remember thinking, waking up in the morning and thinking, "Oh my God, I've been (laughs) Vegas."
2: You've been vegased but you've been by librarians. <laughs> but that's something you may not know that library conferences can get pretty wild. I mean, some people oh, have yeah. Some people have matching culotte outfits. That's wild for them. It's nuts. I don't know. So yeah, so we read all your other picture books. And I have a very serious question. Were you tortured with sweaters like Lester was at some point in your life?
1: Um, not exactly, but there's, there's some autobiographical content in that book. Um, uh, Cousin Clara is based on my great auntie, Sissy, who... Um, is, was from a different time and different generation. Um, she had a mustache and a leg that wouldn't bend, <laughs> and she was a horrible present giver. Uh, I grew up. I grew up in Scotland, and um, Easter eggs are, you know, very common in Britain. And uh, you know, I get all the big Cadbury's ones, and you know. Galaxy and whatever uh, lint, and um, she would always give me these awful dried up chalky chocolate eggs in a coffee mug, which were often, they're always an odd combination to me. I'm not sure why you would get a chocolate egg in a coffee mug. I don't see what one has to do with the other, um, but. Uh, that, that's, where the, where, that's where the clucks of the story came from. I mean, it was, it was really about the sort of emotional journey of a child who learns to say thank you, uh, to preserve the giver's feelings, even though they don't like the gift.
2: Mm-hmm. And that,
1: that's where the story came from.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, I loved all the sweaters. Um, I just, I loved all the different ver- versions of torture that Lester had to wear.
0: I was so intrigued reading about your childhood. I I read a few interviews that you had given talking about how you were sitting in corners of drafty castles in Scotland. What was that like? I mean I can't even imagine. It was normal for me.
1: I actually I went to I went to a very old school. Um I never changed schools. I started when I was five. I graduated when I was eighteen. Um It was in the shadow of Edinburgh Castle. It was built in the 1700s. It's really cool. It's a very, very cool building. Um, Actually, it's a school that they claim um, Hogwarts is based on uh, because J.K. wrote it. She wrote the first book just around the corner, and her kids actually wound up at that school as well. Um, So, yeah, I mean, it has all sorts of ghost stories, stories. can print some uh, pretty gruesome ones as well. or one gruesome one anyway.
0: Can you tell it to um, us? Yeah, you can't. You can't. Uh, sure. um,
1: <laughs> the oldest part of the school is, was built in I think it was 1620s. It was started, um, and it has four turrets, one in each corner, um, and they're square from the outside, but there's an inner courtyard, a, a quadrangle, um, and the staircases are accessed from that quadrangle, and the staircases are round, and they're very small. Um, and they twist around, just like you would imagine in a castle Uh So when the school was built, it was built for boys who had lost their fathers, um, and they would actually live there. Uh, and they lived in dormitories in, in, up these turrets, which are now classrooms. Um, and there was one boy who was, was given the the um, unenviable task of waking everyone up in the morning, and he did so by drumming. Uh, and He was called the drummer boy. So obviously he was inevitably, whichever poor soul was given this job, was the most unpopular boy in school. Legend has it that one morning, um, totally, totally over this kid coming, he got pushed down the turret stairs and his head smashed open on one of the steps. And to this day, three, four hundred years later, no one walks on that step, and it is clearly different than all the others, which have been worn away over the, over the years. And the kids at the school still don't walk on it. I'm sure occasionally someone does it as a dare, but in general people step over it so it's interesting to see that legend still practiced today it's cool
0: wow creepy thank you. thank you
2: if you have any more you want to tell us <laughs> we're like ooh, this is wonderful <laughs>
1: <laughs> that isn't quite so gruesome. There's a statue of the school founder and the quadrangle, which is supposed to come to life. Uh, there is supposedly a secret tunnel from the chapel to Edinburgh Castle, um, where, I don't know, there probably is a, a gruesome story behind it, but I can't remember it. I think some bagpiper got stuck in there or something, And <laughs> if you listen carefully on, on the... <laughs> night you can hear the bagpipes somewhere <laughs> under the ground so
2: that's amazing yeah. marcy said to me before we got you on the line what was
0: it that you said to me about edward Gorey?" oh just that i the influences that you mentioned in a lot of your stories uh, I love, like, the Edward Gorey and the, um, was it the Alice in Wonderland illustrations? Is I'd... it Neil Yes. Um, it, it makes me feel like we're talking to sort of like the Benjamin Button of illustrators. Like, if you could age backwards, you're very Edward Gorey-esque, but, of course, much younger. <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, I mean, Edward Gorey definitely a big influence, maybe still the biggest. Um, Tim Burton is another, um uh, I love, there's an uh, an illustrator called Peter McCarthy, do you know him? Uh, you'll know um, Chris Van Alsburg, of course, I so like mm-hmm. him. Um, and a few others. Oh, there's an Italian one, um, Nicoletta Gicoli. She's She does beautiful stuff. Cool. It's, she does a lot of adult stuff as well, sort of, you know, semi erotic. but uh, I guess it's an odd combo.
2: Well, Maurice Sindak actually had um, erotic drawings and paintings as well.
1: Yeah, yeah, he does. I'm actually, I'm, I'm, I'm gravitating upwards age wise. Next year uh, will be the release of the first book of a middle grade trilogy that Ooh. I've been working on with Random House. Um It's called A Small Zombie Problem.
0: Oh, that sounds and, wonderful. Um,
1: it's set. Now, it's not, it's not officially set anywhere, um, because we want to keep it not too regional-based, but it is actually set in Louisiana. Um, I mean, we've taken out all the local terminology so that it's, it's more accessible uh, globally, um, but anyone who knows Louisiana will know that that's where it is. Um.
2: So are you writing it and drawing it?
1: I am writing and illustrating it, um, and it's been it's been a long process. It's something that's been in the works for a long time. As as I've heard so many directors and actors and authors say this before and now I know what that means. <laughs> um, when it comes out next year, it will be five years since Random House actually made me the offer, um, and it's been in the works for longer than that. Uh, but just, you know, work gets in the way, you get other projects, and um, and things get delayed. But this, this is something that I feel my career has been moving towards. Um, I have always wanted to be in middle grade and I've always wanted to write middle grade and so this is it. This is the big one.
0: That sounds so exciting. And what, what age is it meant for? Um, like your main character, how old is is he or she?
1: Uh, well, middle grade is technically 8 to 12. I would say it probably leans, as most of my stuff does, it leans toward the upper end of that age range. Um, the protagonist is he celebrates his 12th birthday in the first book. Um, So uh, he'll probably age to 13 throughout the trilogy. Um, Yeah. Perfect. So it kind of fits into the Southern Gothic genre. um, It is about zombies, um, but it's not the whole zombocalypse that we're used to. It's not a viral-based kind of thing. It's not gory. Uh, Zombies in this, Iteration of zombie lore um, are tragic figures. Um, it's more about magic. Uh, mm-hmm. Magic. We haven't actually gone into voodoo per se because it's a sensitive subject, being a religion, and a lot of people still practice it, and it's maybe a little above the, the age group. So it's it's sort of about magic, um, and the zombies are kind of sad and mysterious and mm-hmm. and beautiful in a way it's, uh, so it's quite introspective and psychological and emotional and um, ultimately it's about human loneliness and it's so anyway
0: <laughs> but it's
1: very atmospheric lots of uh, you know Spanish moss and <laughs> and uh, dark rivers that are actually bayous but we don't call them bayous um <laughs>
2: Thank you so much for speaking with us.
1: Well, thank you for speaking with me. Thank you for asking.
2: Thank you for joining us today on the Newberry Tart Podcast, where we spoke with KG Campbell, the illustrator of the 2014 Newberry Award-winning and Ulysses' The Illuminated Adventures by Kate DiCamillo.
0: Production assistance for Newberry Tart is provided by Raphael Siebenman and Liam Grove. Graphic design by Liz Mytinger. Intro and outro by Ariana Hargrave. Theme music for this podcast is provided by the laid-back and local Throckmorton Ukulele Band. You can hear more of their music on Facebook. Find more Newberry Tart episodes at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Our website is Newberry Tart. That's N E W B E R Y T A R T dot com.